when you think about whether you're going to do it or not, answer these two questions. Will it matter in 100 years? Is anyone going to die? And if the answer <laughs> to both of those is no, then you really just need to get on and do it. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Caroline Murray, aka The Wilderness Vet. Caroline graduated from Liverpool University Vet School in 1997 and in addition to her veterinary degree, holds a bachelor's degree in zoology and a master's in conservation and wildlife medicine. After spending the first few years of her career working in the UK, she took the opportunity to spread her wings and test the combination of remoteness, veterinary medicine and conservation that became the hallmarks of her career with a trip to West Africa to care for orphaned primates. Wild adventures ensued, a pattern was set and the wilderness vet was born. Those adventures have led her all all over the globe, caring for horses in the Mongol Derby, a 1,000-kilometer endurance horse race across the Mongolian desert, and near-death experiences with injured sled dogs in light aircraft above the frozen Alaskan tundra as part of the Adidarod vet team, and more recently to New Zealand, where she currently resides. Now, just before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Thrive Professional Skills Course from VEDEX International. If you're working in practice and clients or colleagues are making you miserable, then I have good news and bad news. The bad news is you're probably the source of your problems. The good news is that you're also 100% in control of changing things and having a great career. You are missing some skills and they're not clinical. Enter Thrive. Thrive is a race accredited professional skills training course and community where members receive training, toolkits, mentoring support, and peer support to develop those skills. Paul, one of the community members, says joining was the best decision of his life and went from being miserable to being energized and happy in his work. Membership's available for a small monthly fee where you can join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better. To learn more and enroll, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash thrive today. Now back to the show. There are many things to admire about Caroline. Maybe for you, it will be the opportunity her stories provide to recall or experience the thrill of travel and the excitement the exploration of this vast world offers. Maybe it'll be her spirit of fearless adventure combined with an affable nature that melt together to inspire us all to take a few more risks in pursuit of our goals. Whatever, one thing is sure, Caroline reminds us all that those lucky enough to be in possession of a veterinary degree really do have the world at their fingertips and a passport to the front row of life. So enjoy this lockdown conversation with the intrepid Dr. Caroline Murray. Caroline Murray, welcome to Blunt Dissection. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to virtually be here. So I want to know, normally I do the scene setting, but New Zealand is a place of just epic beauty. So which island are you on? And set a little bit of scene for us like what what is the view outside your window tell us a bit more so i'm currently in blenheim which is near the top of the south island which is one of my favorite areas it's normally got the most sun and the most heat although now we're in the middle of a brutal monsoon winter although you can't see it 180 degrees behind me behind the television is a view of the beautiful wither hills so i can literally look onto the mountains and in five minutes, I can drive there and be walking in the hills. So it's a pretty special place. Are you a Lord of the Rings fan? <laughs> no, sadly, I'm afraid. <laughs> I have two lovely memories from New Zealand. And one of them is 
flying into Queenstown, which I have to say is one of the most terrifying and beautiful airports to fly into because you just you just spiral down toward it and then your wingtips are just about touching the mountains as you're landing but there's a little place called is it Aratown or Araton Aratown and it's like stepping back into incredible history it's beautiful New Zealand's a beautiful place I'm delighted I'm delighted to have you on the show and, and delighted to to be shouting out a wonderful place in New Zealand virus free New Zealand no less well, almost. There's things you hear on the media. Well, there's things that happen on the media that don't quite get out internationally. So it's almost virus free. But we've got the border shut and there's no looking like they're going to open anytime soon. So that's a good start. And you've you've got Jacinta O'Hearn at the helm. She seems like a, a politician that you actually would like to have as a friend. It's funny because all the other countries are like, we want her because our leader is broken. <laughs> she is good. I don't think she's the amazing messiah angel that everyone thinks she is overseas, but she is good. But also New Zealand had the luxury of seeing the train wreck approaching and shutting down before it all got in. So we were really lucky. Yeah, <clears throat> And there's and, only 5 million people and 55 and, million sheep. And sits in a, a pretty isolated location in the middle of the sort of South Pacific Ocean, very, very far from pretty much everything. So that probably helped a little bit as well. Yes, exactly. So I want to kick off the interview. And I was thinking, I, I was thinking of words that when I, when I look through somebody's, you know, resume and Instagram profile and your Instagram profile, profile is uh, the wilderness vet, which I love, and we'll come on to that in a second. But, you know, the words fearlessness, adventurer, yeah, just, just lust for life. Those are the things that just jumped out at me and made me so excited to do this interview. But I want to actually jump into, <laughs> and I feel like there's a story, I feel like there's a lot of story to discuss here. But the incident I want to jump into is, I don't know if, if you would call it passport gate, but tell us about the time that you had your passport stolen and got stranded working, not with or for, with Exxon and you had your passport stolen and were stranded. Tell us about that. Getting your passport stolen and stranded in West Africa sounds like everybody's nightmare. So yeah, here we are merrily bantering about it. Tell me, like, what happened? How, like, tell us the story. So the first thing I would say is this is a moral, the moral of the story is never pay to do volunteer work because this is the one thing that I did pay for and things went very wrong. <laughs> so I broke my golden rule. So there was a university in Philadelphia that was advertising for people to go and do a monkey census in West Africa. And I really love West Africa. And um, I try and do like a yearly adventure every year. So I signed up for this thing and it said, um, you have to do some wildlife stuff, which I did. And it said, you have to be able to speak Spanish. And I could speak about three words of Spanish. So I did, yes, I can speak Spanish. I'll deal with that later because that's required. And I'll just blag my way well, through. So what were the three words? <laughs> um, hello, Brian, thank you. So dos, cerveza, and then a sort of hybrid, por favor. <laughs> Not, not even that. So I couldn't get anything to eat. The most, I would have thought the most valuable ones would be Donde es los baños, particularly some of the locations you've been. 
when I did learn that though, what happened was they answered me and I couldn't understand the answer. <laughs> Panic stations. <laughs> you can ask where the bathrooms are, you need to understand what they're telling you. A crit- you just look at them like, eh. A critical piece of information, I would suggest. Okay, right, sorry, so back to, and, and what, which country were you in? So it was this little island called Bioko Island, which is off the coast of Equatorial Guinea. So that was another story in itself. So Exxon Valdez was um, sponsoring this project, 30,000 US dollars a year. And so we flew into the mainland and you go into this secure and inverted commas Exxon compound where the security guards take your passport off you at the um, entrance to the compound. Then we get get on this giant boat, go across the ocean to this little island. We have to climb down the side of this boat and get on this like crazy dinghy where we thought we were all going to die and drown. So these are like cargo nets over the side of the big boat. Pretty much, yeah. And they're like, okay, you have to climb off the boat now and get in this tiny wooden rowing boat. And I was like, um, I don't remember seeing this in the sign-up material. <laughs> So we got there, got to this island, and um, then you have to basically hike for hours through this hot, humid rainforest. And they have these huge West African, um, really muscly fit guys who carry your backpacks. And one guy who was an ice hockey player said, no, no, I've got this. I'm really fit. I'm going to carry my backpack. And because it was like 100% humidity and 33 degrees, all the really fit people, interesting, nearly nearly expired in hour one because they didn't give the guys their rucksacks and we did. <laughs> so the project was incredible. We were camping on this island, doing a census of monkeys, um, colobus monkeys, which are really endangered. And we saw all these little, I can't remember what you call them, the things that fly in the night, flying squirrels, things like that. Um, And also, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life, we saw leatherback turtles coming to nest on the beach at night and lay eggs. So it was pretty incredible. Yeah. So that was for about a week. We were just living in the forest with these Americans and the African guys running around after us. And then when we came back, we were all supposed to pack up and go home. And when I'd left, I'd said to the lady um, organizing the trip, I'm just a little bit worried because I haven't got my passport back, you know, before we got on the boat. And no, no, no problem. It will all be fine. We'll just collect it when you get back. So I came back and discovered, oh, look, no one's admitting that I ever gave them my passport because I had a brand new English passport. And apparently that sells for $10,000 on the black market. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure that's what has happened. So they start questioning all their employees. And of course, no one remembers seeing it or handling it. And my flight's due to leave in two days. And they specifically told us this island has no UK embassy. So and don't bring any visa cards, just bring cash because you won't need anything because we're just going to be on this island. So I had no money, no visa card and no way of getting a new passport. So far, this sounds like it's not a million miles removed from perhaps being kidnapped from a boat and by, you know, pirates and then hold up with with no means of escape, except this is something you've paid to do. So what happened next? Well, so on that note, luckily there was no guns and I was in a luxury Exxon compound. And I said to them, okay, we need to call the police now because someone's stolen my passport and my flight leaves in two days and I need to be on it. And they said, 
no, 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 don't worry about that. We'll just sort this out. And unbeknownst to me, they then got the heavies in and started pressuring the security guards and interrogating them. Where is her passport? She needs to leave. And of course, they didn't tell anyone. So the time came for my flight to leave and all the Americans left and said, bye, see you later. And I got abandoned in this compound (laughs) with a satellite phone that I was ringing people with that they then disabled so I couldn't ring anyone because it was costing them hundreds of dollars. And I rang my mother, who's normally quite crazy and stressed out about these things, and said, my passport's been stolen, I'm not going to be home, and I was due to start a locum job next week. And she said, thinking she would totally freak out, okay, see you when you get back, donk. (laughs) (laughs) What? Um, But I had no money to get another flight. And so I said to Exxon, your guys have stolen my passport, so you need to get me a flight home. And this is where it got really interesting. And it turned out that the security manager who was in charge of all this stuff was on holiday, so they didn't know what to do. So normally they would have gone to the police, got me like an exit visa and got me on the plane, but no one knew that. So when he came back after my flight was was due to leave, he duly did that. But then I said to them, you need to buy me a flight out of here because you've caused me to miss my flight. And they said, we don't have the resources to do that. And I said, well, last time I checked, Exxon made $99.9 billion a day. So I think actually you do. (laughs) Please, can you get me a flight home? And they flatly refused. Um, So I had to, again, ring up my mother and I managed to get, oh, oh, I rang up this airline and I said, I'm stranded here. I need to get back. I'm in West Africa. And they said, oh, are you a Bushmeat student? And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I am. And they said, oh, that's great because you can get a 50% um, discount on your flight. So I said, brilliant, I'll take that. (laughs) And then I got on this plane to go home, which was another experience. It was this plane that basically only the oil rig and workers get on. So I was, I got on the plane and instead of like the usual newspapers, they were giving out FHM kind of magazines. And I was the only girl on the flight. There was all these big oil guys who haven't drunk for a month. And they start basically giving out double alcoholic drinks as they get on the plane. (laughs) And um, you have a row of um, seats to yourself and a cushion. By the time we landed in Heathrow, they were all roaring drunk and rolling around the plane. And we got into immigration about 3 a.m. And there was this poor little woman there trying to get all the people from the flight through. And these guys rolling in like, hello, darling. I am not your darling. (laughs) And so when I got there and said, well, I've got this exit visa and apparently, you know, I'm coming and I haven't got my passport. And she said, no, we don't know anything about this, but I'm going to let you through. Because you've been sat on a plane for eight hours with this. He must be an angel. You've got through this. You'll, you can come back into your yeah. country. No, nothing we're going to put you through is going to be worse. So. so then I wrote an email to Exxon and said, well, I'd like you to refund my flight that cost me £300 and I've just lost £1,000 of locum work. So I'd like a refund. Thanks very much. And um, I found the emails of all these head people in America of Exxon and harassed them for a bit. And what they did was really interesting. Um, Obviously, they said no, because they didn't have the resources, because they didn't have a fund for people who've had their passports stolen that they needed to pay back. But what they also did, which was really awful, is they threatened the um, project, the American project that they were sponsoring, and said, 
if you don't get rid of this annoying little weevil who's harassing us, we're going to pull out all our $30,000 a year funding for your conservation project. Oh, that was nice of them. That was interesting. So we'll, we'll, we'll have a massive oil spillage, contaminate the natural environment. Which we've never paid for, ever. We, right. Mm. So that was a good lesson in cor the corporate world. That wasn't a time you paid, though, was it? That was... Or, or was that? Have I unwittingly stumbled on the same... Project that I paid for. So I paid £3,000 to lose a lot of money and be stranded. <laughs> but to be fair, the week I had... So I was stranded for a week while they decided what they were doing. The compound was quite luxurious. So I basically spent the week swimming in their pool, in the gym and reading their books. And they had to move me around in the room. So I wasn't... So I had a room to myself. So I wasn't interfered with by the oil rigger guys who were coming and going... <laughs> Had you under lock and key. So there's many, many things I would like like to chat about. Let's start with uh, perhaps the, the, the title, The Wilderness Vet. Where did that come from? How did that come about? So I've always really loved traveling and I was trying to look for like a little name that I wanted, like a kind of little personal brand kind of company thing. And it started off as The Roaming Vet because I always used to call myself a gypsy. All my family is from overseas originally. None of them are really English. And so I always used to kind of joke that I was gypsy and it was in my blood to travel around. And then when I started going to Africa and went to the jungle and I really loved being in the mountains, I just popped up with the wilderness word because it kind of really resonated with the stuff that I really love. And it's different to what, you know, other people's. I wanted something a bit different to, you know, just a vet word. You have done a lot of traveling. We're going to dig into some of those travels and some of the, the work that you've done. I'm particularly curious of, you know, where that, where that sort of lust, that travel bug comes from. Like, is there an influence in your life that, that you know, helped to mold that or encourage that? Because I'm thinking now as a father as well, like I, I look at your, and this is, this is a blatant double standard on my part, because I like, I enjoy traveling and exploring and, and but you, I mean, you put you put me in the, in the shade utterly, and I look at your career and I think, wow, that's that's really cool. She's done some really cool stuff, and I think, oh my god, like if, if that's my daughter, I'm going to be freaking out nonstop, like I'm going to have a heart attack when like every every time, like in dread. But I'm wondering, was there an influence that you can look back and plot back and go, you know, this was this was kind of on the cards. This was just something in, deep inside of me that that was going to manifest? I think a couple of things. First of all, like I said, my family's all from overseas and I was born in Australia. So really luckily I had an Australian passport. My parents were the 10 pound pommies. And so I left Australia strapped to the bulkhead of a TWA plane when I was four months old. <laughs> all right. So before you go on there, and I, I do want you, I don't want to interrupt your flow too much, but just explain because many, many of our listeners are over in the States. So explain what the 10 pound poms are. Okay, so in the 1970s, Australia really wanted immigrants and people to do work. And so they offered this amazing deal of a 10 pound one way flight to Australia. So my parents, actually, it was very lucky that I'm even still here. So my parents had a choice. My dad got offered a job in Uganda. So they would have been there in the middle of the Idi Amin fiasco. And my mother very sensibly decided Australia was a much more sensible option. 
so they got the £10 flight and my dad had a really good job. He was a dentist in Adelaide um, and then Sydney. So um, I was born in Adelaide and then they moved to Sydney. So some other people who got the £10 flights ended up in the middle of the bush, nowhere, and had some really bad experiences and left. But my parents had, um, were really lucky. My dad really loved it there and wanted to stay. But my mum, who kind of rules the roost, found it really difficult to get a job. And the chauvinistic attitude of the Australian, which seems to still persist now, made it really difficult for her to do that. So she decided to have a baby instead, which was me. <laughs> and then they decided, she decided she wanted to leave and they travelled a bit. So they actually flew to the States, I think, flew from Australia to the States on the way back to England. The journey involved in that trip to Australia back then, and many of the £10 poms went on boats as well, didn't they? Like, they, they literally sailed them, well, I mean, over over the seas. I mean, I, I think that's how the Brits originally ended up, up there, and you know, or certainly lots of, lots of us ended up in convict ships and things like that as well, but that's another story for another time. I think that's why this, the whole South Island of New Zealand has very Scottish names. Actually, can I tell you a quick... New Zealand story. I went to a place just north of Auckland and it was on the way up. I was going to I was going to do a, you know, taking a camper van and drive up to the Bay of Islands and and it was not far away from and I'm gonna butcher the name because they're all unpronounceable names. But like it was Wangarai Wangari Wangari, right? And there's, I mean, there's some names you can't pronounce because if you said them in polite company, they, they really sound quite rude in New Zealand. There's a lot of fuckatamas and stuff like that. And you're like, wait, what? You can't, you can't say, no, it's really a place in New Zealand. I'm not, I'm not being rude. Anyway, so this place, uh, on the way there, there was a little rest, like town off of the highway. And it's, yeah, I drove into it and it had, a tartan road sign or a road sign emblazoned in tartan and I thought well that's promising and I got in it actually everything was tartan it was like it was it was worse than a woolen mill in Edinburgh level of tartan you know to the point even the cops had like little tartan things on them and every and so nobody was actually Scottish but they were super proud of being Scottish and I was like I'm not Scottish enough to be here I don't think like I don't I don't really sound that Scottish and I'm not wearing tartan I was the only person not wearing tartan so but there, there's such strong Scottish migratory um, travel and what makes what amuses me greatly I think Billy Connolly made this point it's like <laughs> right lads where are we gonna go we can go anywhere in the world let's go somewhere really warm and and nice and lovely like what we do New Zealand okay that sounds good which bit of it the north no it's a bit too warm Let's go to this South Island. Which bit? The very tippy bottom bit of it. As close to the Antarctic as possible. And they, they found Invercargill. And it just looks... What I've seen in Dunedin and what I've seen of rugby there, it's much more miserable than actual Scotland when it comes to weather. So... <laughs> Invercargill has gruesome winter. They actually, I don't know if you know this, they actually have free university fees down there to try and get people to go there because it's so grim. It's so brutal. 
Yeah, and it, it just looks like a, a foreboding place that makes you glad that you're in Glasgow, where it only rains 363 days of the year, So, and, and it's not sub-zero all the time. But we're probably being very, very mean to Invercargill there, so apologies if you live there, and commiserations. Um, so the love of travel was kind of partially instilled, inspired by early early travel with parents, is there anything else there that, that sort of spiked your interest? Also, I didn't really travel a lot when we were younger. We normally just went to Europe or went on lots of hiking trips, which is why I really liked the wilderness. But when I was at university, I got a really amazing opportunity. Glaxo Welcome were paying students, I think, as part of some kind of tax dodge, £10,000. And this was in um, the mid-90s to do a, it was called a Cornell Leadership Programme, a summer school. So it was four weeks in America at Cornell University, which is really prestigious at the vet school, mm-hmm. and um, a research programme. And I'm not really into research, but I decided I really wanted to go to America and travel around America. So I need to blag my way onto this research programme. So I found a guy who was really good at research and did the programme before, and he told me how to get accepted. (laughs) So I did four weeks of research, which I was absolutely appalling at. Like, I would run these gels, and they would run all over the work surface onto the floor, and my boss was just wringing his hands. (laughs) But at the end of that, I got to travel around America for six weeks on an Amtrak train, part of which I forged the last two weeks to get a longer ticket. But that was the start of my kind of solo, really long travels. (laughs) And that kind of set the scene for my globetrotting. I didn't want to go home. It was so amazing. In all of your stories, there's, I mean, apart, there's a borderline lawlessness, but there's there's a fearless, intrepid sort of frontier person that likes to, you know, be pushing the envelope of life's experience and just living it like like absolutely thoroughly i'm super curious so it feels like you are, are like the veterinary you are to veterinary medicine what macgyver was to macgyver <laughs> like i feel like if i locked you in a room with nothing but like like a piece of paper and and was foolish enough to leave a thumbtack in the room that would be my bad I would suffer for that decision. <laughs> so now I'm curious as to what's the the word, and I think I think we used this in our email exchange at one point. The word blag came up. And I feel like this might be a very accurate word to describe. You are I, I wonder, you're a study in and this is only becoming more clear to me as we sort of talk, and maybe you can react to this rather than anything. This is not a heavily researched opinion. But, you know, they describe what luck is. You know, it's preparedness meets opportunity. And sort of there's an opportunism. There's a a willingness to commit to things that might go horribly wrong, but turn out to be... And I I think, you know, by your your experience, like some of these things have gone horribly wrong in in some of your moments. But there's that willingness to commit regardless. And and just, I I think it is a, a fearlessness. There's an intrepidness about this. So... I'm curious to jump to, there's two things really jump out from your travels as well. And I, and I think it's important to say that you're, you underplay, I think, the amount of experience and, and that is counted in degrees, but also in languages spoken now. 
as well as rich tapestry of life. So you've got your veterinary degree, you hold a, a bachelor's also in zoology, a master's in conservation medicine. You speak three languages, one of which is Mongolian. <laughs> that, well, again, that's slightly blagging. Basic Spanish and Mongolian. You didn't see that word, Dave. <laughs> I saw the basic in front of the Spanish, but I didn't see it in front of the Mongolian, actually. I've got your CV in front of me, so you know we can we can replay that now. You do have the you've got basic Spanish, comma and Mongolian. So that's you're just laying a little trap that I can gloss over there quite easily. <laughs> she does speak extremely fluent Mongolian. Okay, so you can order two beers in Mongolian and Spanish, but that's a lot of experience acquired along the way. I'm curious. The bigger question is here: what? And I think <laughs> your mom asked this in a very unkind way. We were speaking before. But I would ask the question that your mum asked slightly differently. And that would be, what does, I'm almost curious to ask, have you found what you're looking for? I don't think I have, but I've got a better idea of what I am looking for now. And um, interestingly, I'm just doing this coaching program at the moment. And it's really interesting. It, it looks into like your values and beliefs and what can you live without and what do you really need? And a lot of the things that came up for me was like, I have to be like reading and learning. I have to be traveling. I need to be in nature. And ironically, the course was about business online. So I was thinking, hmm, maybe this isn't really what's in it for me. But that's a learning experience as well. But I think the problem with traveling is the more you do, I thought that if you travel a lot every year, then you kind of get it out of your system and then you settle down and get into work. But the more you see, the more you want to see and the more you realise you don't know. And there's so many cultures and people out there that we're not aware of. And I think it's really important for people in the Western world to travel, especially to countries that don't have, you know, running water, electricity. You can't just turn the shower on. Some of them don't even have proper buildings. So it really makes you question who you are and what you want. And I know one of the things I do really want to do is make a difference and help people in whatever I do. I also want to be like the vet Simon Reeves do, doing like a wildlife conservation travel vet series. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. I would watch that show. So what's been the most... Of all of the travels you've had, what's been the most rewarding work or adventure and, and why is that so? Well, I think there's kind of two answers to that. There's one that's the most exciting and the one that was the most kind of like mind opening. All right, let's do both of those. <laughs> the one that was the most exciting was going on the Iditarod sled dog race in Alaska, which um, in regards to your blagging, that's kind of literally the story of how I got most of my <laughs> events. Okay, let's define let's define blagging. Blagging sounds like a very English word for chancing your arm. So basically my MO is it, I find a thing that I really want to do and I find the people that I need to get me into there and that's proven very useful in a lot of places and then you have to explain to people when you're there why you should be there because they're like what are you even doing here? Like how did this even happen? <laughs> Which is how I ended up in New Zealand, actually. Okay, so so the Iditarod, how did you get... So that's a sled dog race, like a, a huge sled dog race across Alaska, right? Yes. So it's based on a historic event where they had to find, 
I, think, I can't remember if it's tetanus or diphtheria vaccine back in the day. And they basically loaded it up on these sled dogs and raced across the wilderness to deliver it to these remote villages. And then over time, it's turned into like a commercial race. So every year, people pay about, I think it's about $10,000 now to do this race, but they have to be really experienced of wilderness because they're on their own for two weeks with dogs. Okay, yeah, tell me more about the race then, because this is this is something that popped up on my radar and I like, so what's involved? That's his history. What do they have to do to complete that? So they have to start with, I think it's about 16 dogs on their team and it's a thousand miles and there's about, I think it's about 20 checkpoints over those thousand miles where they get they have um there's food dropped all along the way and any spare equipment they think they might need or clothing food for them and the animals and then us vets are at the checkpoints checking the dogs as they come through but they literally don't sleep the whole time it's like a 24 7 thing it's not like they just go during the day and have a really nice sleep and carry on so by the end of it the fastest people i think it's got down to just over a week now they're almost hallucinating and they're completely crazy and they get more and more grumpy as they go along the race because they're just pushing themselves so much the dogs are incredible. They're not really huskies anymore. They're pointers crossed with huskies. I, I saw that in the photo that you sent through of you doing there. I thought that does not look like a husky. Because they're too slow now, the big huskies. So it's all about speed now. And um, they can win. I think the prize is $50,000 and some big Dodge truck or something. Good old American <laughs> vehicle. So it's really prestigious and um, people from the age of 18 upwards can do it. Some of the big companies like Ucanuva sponsor some of them. So the animal rights people are really against it. And so there's really rigorous testing before the race of all the dogs. They have like full physical exams, ECGs, blood tests. And so they're really strict and also um, temperament tests because one year they had a guy who um, had dogs that were biting everyone. And that's really not okay because the race goes through lots of villages and there's lots of school kids. So it's a really big like social and cultural thing as well. And mm. each year the route alternates through different villages to kind of give them more business because people come from all over the world to see this race. Yeah. And as vets, we're really lucky. We basically fly in um, to Anchorage and then we get flown in Cessna planes between the checkpoints to check the animals. And the other people um, go on um, quad bikes between the checkpoints. Some of them fall through the ice occasionally and get really badly injured and just duct tape themselves back up until the end of the race. So it's quite insane. They're super hardcore people. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, the animals, what sort of things were you seeing with the animals and having to having to treat, like, was it exhaustion? Was it... Interestingly, it really varies because the um, sea ice, because of climate change, is melting. So some years when it's really snowy, they have kind of muscle strains and sprains because they're kind of high-stepping it through the really deep snow. Mm. And then other years um, when there's no snow and they're running through mud, which really shouldn't happen, and they can't run on the sea ice because it's not there, they get really sore paws from running on the mud. And they get quite a lot of harness rubs. And just if um, some dogs get really tired and they're pulling unevenly, they get um, quite a lot of muscle sprains and strains. But they have this, I was trying to remember the name of it, this amazing substance. It's got like a peanut oil base. It's kind of like Arnica, but not. 
and um, it's this magic thing which I managed to um, steal a bottle of that was left over. <laughs> Why does that not come as a giant surprise? We were all fighting over this leftover bag. I need it more than you do. I'm, I've got some of it. Um, but they rub it into the dogs and it's really good. It's kind of like a homeopathic herbal thing. So the, um, the mushers are really experienced and they know their dogs really well. And so one of the problems is with the really high up, really competitive ones, you'll say, well, you know, this dog's got a bit of a rub or it's got a bit of sprain. I think we need to take it out of the team. And they'll say, no, absolutely not. I'm just carrying on. So there's a really good kind of hierarchy of people in that case, like higher up mushers and judges and officials, because they don't really want to listen to some young foreign female saying, oh, I really don't think your dog's very well. <laughs> because they know that these dogs basically will run until they literally drop dead. And that has happened. Yep. But that doesn't happen because they're not looked after. It's because they're so good at hiding if something is wrong. And they love running. Like you see them, I've got this video of them. They're literally like kangaroos waiting to get going. But on the other hand, they do have a limit. So there was this young girl who was really pushing her dog. She wanted to win the rookie race. And some of the older mushers were really unhappy with what she was doing, just like pushing, pushing. And she got to within a couple of days of the end of the race. And normally when you harness the dogs up, they're squealing, running around, jumping, really keen to go. And she harnessed her dogs up and they just sat down and refused to move, which is almost unheard of with sled dogs. They were just really tired and they'd had enough. So she had a tantrum. Daddy flew in in his helicopter to speak to her. <laughs> And um, it was a really good lesson to her that you need to treat your dogs well, otherwise things don't work out how you want them to. And she had to pull out of the race. Was that was the most exciting thing you'd, you'd taken part in or was... So one of the most exciting, well, or slash scary things was during the flying between the checkpoints, I used to get really um, airsick on the planes <coughs> and to the point that the pilots called me the puker and didn't want to let me fly in their planes. You're, you're on the quad bike next, next leg. And um, because they're really small private planes, you have to learn to stockpile air sickness bags on your international flights on the way in. Otherwise, it's really hard and you're scrabbling around when you're about to be really sick, which they don't like either. So I learned that after the first year. So two things happened that were quite crazy there. One was we were flying between these checkpoints and um, I was just getting over a bout of sickness and we get this mayday call from one of the pilots that a dog um, is really unwell. So my pilot's the nearest pilot and he's like, oh, we're going to turn around and see this dog. And I'm like, oh, crap, I'm like really grieved and feeling ill. So we wheel the plane around and we go and we land on this frozen lake. And the other pilot who called us was really experienced. He was an ex-Air Force air-to-air refueling pilot. So he was like one at the top of his game. And he was really worried because between us getting the Mayday and us arriving, his plane had been blown about 100 metres backwards in the really brutal winds. And um, our pilot said to us, you need to get out, check the dog, get back in. We can't cut the engines. We're in the middle of nowhere. If the plane stop, we're going to be stranded here. And one of the things that the pilots used to say when we got in, I was always really nervous. They used to start their... Um, kind of spill with okay you know my name is and, and the emergency stuff's in the tail and I used to say but we won't need that right because we're going to be okay <laughs> and so we rushed in looked at the dog really unfortunately it, it had 
somehow strangled itself on the plane, which again was really unheard of. So we looked at the dog, rushed back in, said, okay, our pilot's right, we need to get out of here. And um, so we started trying to take off and the wind was so strong, our plane was being pushed back onto the lake and I could see his knuckles going white as he was pushing the throttle and nothing was really happening. And I said to him, "Um, are we okay? Like, are we gonna get out of here? And he said, yeah, yeah, everything's fine, no problem. And so we somehow managed to take off and we had this hugely turbulent ride back with more vomiting. And um, I got and then we got back and he kind of pretended that everything was fine. And later, just by chance, I was walking through the office and I heard him on the phone to his wife going, I thought we were going to die. It was terrible. So I was really grateful that he held it together. So that was the first exciting thing. And um, the other exciting thing, which was more distressing at the time was exciting, was the first year that I went, I didn't even finish the race because I rolled out of a really high bunk bed and snapped the end off my radius. So I broke my wrist at um, seven o'clock early in the morning. And we were in this remote cabin in the middle of nowhere. One of the rules of the race is that you're not allowed to have alcohol. And I was really new and thought these rules would be adhered to. But in the little cabin where we were, they had a little, which I probably shouldn't say this because people shouldn't hear, they had a little stash of under the floor alcohol for rule flouting because it was really cold and people needed a little tip. Sorry. So only about 5,000 people will listen to this over the next year or so, so... I'm sure it won't make it back. <laughs> so far in this podcast, we're going to get sued by Exxon, GlaxoSmithKline, and uh, Didrod. I, I should just make, for just for legal reasons, point out the views expressed, not the views of Blunt Dissection or Vex International. <laughs> and I probably need to get a lawyer after this. <laughs> um, Only if it's not true. <laughs> I rolled out of bed really early in the morning when everyone was really hungover, heard my wrist crack really badly, realised I'd really badly broken something, luckily not my neck. And um, so my friends kind of bundled me up, tried to bandage me up. The bandage was really tight, which I didn't realise at the time because they were still really hungover and in a hurry. And then they managed to, then they wrapped me up in a sleeping bag, put me in a skidoo, took me to the airstrip where an emergency plane was scrambled Um, with a few ill sled dogs tucked under the seat. (laughs) Then I was taken to the Bush Hospital, where they gave me pethidine, best drug in the universe. I can see why it's really addictive. (laughs) And I was so euphoric with the pethidine, even though I had a catastrophic fracture. I said, oh, I think I'm really good now. I I think you can take me back. Like, let's all have a party. And they said, no, you really need to get to hospital. (laughs) So then I got bundled into another plane and there were some more dogs in there. And I had some female dogs in heat um, in a little bag tucked under my seat. And behind my seat was a lot of male dogs trying to get to the female dog under my seat. (laughs) I'm having a trouble picturing this, right? These are not small dogs. So when you say they're dogs in a bag under your plane seat, I'm just thinking of my, my normal run-of-the-mill plane seats where you can barely get a laptop bag like you can't fit a dog under there well somehow these dogs they get they have these like really big kind of like sacky things for the females in heat and they bundle them in so their little heads poking out and it's like the goats in africa that they get them on the bus they get the dogs under the seat somehow (laughs) 
So that was really interesting. I had like five male dogs trying to claw their way through the back of my seat on the way to hospital. And then I got to hospital. Then I waited three hours for no painkillers. Then I got some surgery, which was really quite horrific. That's a whole nother story. (laughs) Yeah, that was maybe the more exciting one. What was the most rewarding trip I think probably the most rewarding one was not really like a vet one. Last year, I went to see, well, not really a working one. I went to see some friends in West Africa where I'd worked previously and some primate sanctuaries where I'd worked before and where I wanted to go. And I stayed with um, a friend who is from West Africa, who I've known for a really long time from when I first went there. And he was really adamant when I first went there, you're not just going to be this white girl driving around in a white van doing your white girl things. I really want you to experience like proper Africa. So when you arrive after your nine hour trip, we are not going to a really nice hotel. You're going to come and live in my little black township with me for a few days. (laughs) Um, Where, by the way, normally you'd be killed if you're a white person on your own. (laughs) Good night. And was that serious or was that? Yes. Wow. So I we got to the airport and we got in this taxi and it was a really big eye-opener. He basically lived in, it wasn't really a slum, but it was a township. Mm-hmm. They've got no running water. They use a well. They've got electricity. But one thing that was really incredible and he'd already spoken to me about before was that how, you know, um, in Africa, it takes a village to raise a child. And these people that he lived with were amazing. So he lives there on his own. He's got no family around. The rest of his family are overseas. And all the children are running around and everyone looks after them. And all the people really help each other. So he gave his cooker to his neighbor because she's got a young kid. So they've got nowhere of storing food or anything. He can't really even cook food. Mm. And they all really have got an amazing community and help each other. And he wants to leave. It was Cameroon where I went, West Africa. He really wants to leave to progress his career. But he said one of the things he's really going to miss is like that sense of friendship and really belonging. And he spent two years in England and was really lonely. And it really made me realize, you know, in the Western world, we're really all about, you know, capitalism and looking after ourselves. And that whole thing has really been lost. And in New Zealand, actually, that still exists, the community thing, which is one of the reasons I really like it. And so we traveled to a few of these places and it was really not, he was an electrical engineer. He is an electrical engineer. And so these places we traveled to just kind of saying hi, but we were able to like, I helped them with some vet stuff. He helped them with their, they all run like solar electric. They have, they're really ingenious, all the stuff that they do. So we were able to kind of help them while we traveled along. And also we traveled on all these local buses, which was complete insanity i've never seen anything like it you know the bus is supposed to leave and three hours later they're still loading chickens and plantain on and things are getting really messy (laughs) and there's a riot on the bus and the bus driver nearly gets like done over by angry people (laughs) it was sometimes i just thought is this actually really happening like i almost think like buses are the place where just you you see everything i've never you know i used to think like a, a, a an eye-opening journey on a bus was the night bus home from wherever i'd been out and that that was was i'm gonna be completely that was not a tasteful experience 
to spend time on that bus. But that wasn't... My bus stories are mostly Central or South America. And I remember, you know, watching suitcases and then chickens. <laughs> everything going on the bus. And then I was, I was sat and I looked out the window as, and... Uh, I said, "Oh, there's a there's a pig. That's not going on the bus roof. That'd be ridiculous." And within seconds, this pig had like twine round its armpits, and I, and it was just like getting hauled up past. And it was I was just looking out my window, and it was Trotter scrabbling on the window as the pig went on the roof of the bus for a three hour journey over the Andes. And you're like, "Oh my goodness, uh, something else." So sorry to interrupt. So one of the things that happened on this trip, which was, I don't know if it's really rewarding, and sorry, I might have another little story about the rewarding or exciting, mentally rewarding, was one of the things that happened after we came back. So we, we did some really brief travels and then we came back to his little township and went away. And he was really helping the neighbors out with the little kid and things. And so one of the times we came back, they'd um, said, he went and said to them, oh, you know, what are you having dinner for dinner tonight? And the girl said, oh, we can't have food tonight because my mum's really ill. And so we've had to buy her medicine. And I just thought, oh my God, like that, that, you know, that really made me, I thought I was having a really shitty time in my life before I went there. And then it just really made me realize like never in our Western world, are we ever going to be in the situation where we can't have dinner because we have to buy medicine. And her mum just had this really nasty of like shingles rash. And so I said to him, could I maybe buy them the medicine? And um, that was another really interesting lesson. You know, he, this guy has taught me a lot of really interesting things about life. And one of them on that note was, it's not what you do for people, that, but the way you do it as well. Because I didn't want to come across like, oh, I'm this, this really rich white person and I can just buy you everything because that's not really the way aid and stuff works. And so I said, well, will you let me buy it? And they said, yes, I'm really grateful. And then I went to buy it and it was only three pounds. And that was the difference between them having dinner and not having dinner. And they were really grateful. And it just made me almost tearful and like humble that you can really help someone just in such a small way. And it makes such a huge difference in their life. But they would never ask for that. Like they're really tough people. And the way they live is pretty incredible. Like they have to go to the well every day. They've got like a little communal rubbish heap. But in their house, it's like really clean and tidy and amazing. Yeah, yeah you think of the, the the wasteful way that we live in the West where, you know, we, you know, we, I seem tonight like waste is something I, I hate. And I like I look at if I've thrown out vegetables because they get rotten in the bottom of my fridge, I think, man, that's... That wouldn't happen in other places. It, you know, that that would be kind of... It just, it just wouldn't happen. Like, it would be heartbreaking to watch that happening, wouldn't it? But there's much, much we can learn, I think, from other cultures. You mentioned there, and perhaps this is a, a good point to sort of change direction a little bit here. And, and amongst all of the incredible travels and the experience you've had and, you know, you know you, you've worked in Mongolia on massive horse racing events, like huge equine events. You know, there's so many stories and we could talk for ages and ages about that and the, the way that you chase life. But but life is never, you know, it never is everything it appears to be. And there's, there's upsides, there's downsides. And I know that you're particularly keen to 
and certainly what's come across in our, our conversations, you know, in amongst all of these journeys, there's been struggles as well. So what have been some of the, I, I'm actually going to get you to balance this out. And, and perhaps once, you know, there's a, there's a point to exploring the stories and things. I'm really curious about the, the lessons that you've learned, that your, your travels, the people you've met, maybe what were the three best lessons that you've learned? And then as you've traversed life, perhaps you would speak to some of the, the challenges and the traumas that you've endured and how they've perhaps shaped you and perhaps how one has helped the other in some way. I know, and I'm making linkages that might not actually exist, but I get the sense that there probably is a greater narrative here. Mm. So I think one of the lessons is however really bad you think things are, and actually a lot of these lessons were from my Cameroonian friends who I've really drawn strength from when I've had a really bad time because he's lived in a lot of really adverse conditions and he's got incredible mental strength and optimism, which I really admire despite constantly life really beating him down. And um, one of the things is like, this too shall pass. <laughs> Even if you think things are really, really terrible, First of all, there's always people who are worse off than you. And secondly, it's kind of like a phase that you're going through and you just have to really believe that you can get through it and you will. And one of the little pictures that really I look at to inspire me for that is um, a friend of mine, also a vet, um, has written some also really interesting wildlife um, stories. And on one of his articles, he had this photo of... of the civil war in Sudan um, after it. And the picture is of, it looks like a, either two brothers or a guy and his son. And they're in the middle of nowhere in this barren desert leading a cow. And it says, you know, after the civil war in Sudan, this was the only thing that these people had left. And that's a really stark reminder when you think your life is really shit. Actually, we are never going to go through anything like those people have. And so we do really need to kind of get on with it, <laughs> which isn't always easy when you're really wallowing in self-pity. But I think so, that's one of the really, um, I think, important things about traveling. Like it really opens your mind and makes you realize how grateful we should be. And the second lesson would be, which I'll come on to later with the challenges, sometimes out of really bad things, good things can happen. And situations happen that you think are really terrible and like you're going to have to change everything. But then another opportunity comes up that you wouldn't have thought would happen and wouldn't have happened if the bad thing hadn't happened. And that includes people that you meet as well. Some yeah. of the people that I've met in really terrible jobs or situations that have been really bad are now my best friends. It's an incredible way shared adversity can really bond people together or tear them apart. Yeah. It can go either way. Actually, I talk of um, quite a few of my friends, we talk about we've bonded in adversity, which isn't always bad things, but during crazy travels like in Mongolia, when crazy things were going on, where we're looking around like, is this actually really happening? It's so nuts. My brain can't really process this. A question that pops in my head there in, in that, I'm just thinking in that sort of shared adversity, you know, when you go through vet school, one of my observations about life is, you know, you've got various stages and circles of friend as you go through life. You've got your primary school friends, your secondary school friends, your university friends, your early career sort of friends. You might have friends from a sports social or, or whatever. When you're, you're traveling so much, how do you maintain 
a tribe. Who are your tribe and how have you found them and how do you maintain that tribe? And during COVID, how has that affected you? I mean, that must have been tough for somebody with the wanderlust that you have. <laughs> yeah, so with the tribe thing, I'm actually really a bit bad about that because I live a lot between England and New Zealand. So when I'm in England, I'm really in touch with my English friends a lot and my New Zealand ones I'm probably not that great with. <laughs> and then when I come here, I'm really bad at abandoning the motherland friends but the great thing is now, you know, you don't need to write letters anymore. WhatsApp is your best friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's so easy. And during the lockdown, so the lockdown didn't affect me as much as other people, kind of ironically, because a bad thing happened. I had a really horrendous back injury and I prolapsed a disc in my lower back and I couldn't walk for nearly two months. So I was really incapacitated for most of lockdown. So that made it less terrible. I wasn't working during that and having all the really terrible things that a lot of other vets are. But I did find it really socially isolating. But on the flip side, I'm really lucky that I have friends on both sides of the world. So there's normally someone up at 3am or 3pm that you can message or WhatsApp. And I really like, I really struggle with the not being physically close to people. But yeah. um, the talking, which I think a lot of people did, and, you know, hugs. Someone well, someone said to me recently, I haven't had a hug since February. Oh, my God. <laughs> I had a first hug with a friend that I've not seen in three months at, at last weekend. And it was like the best hug ever. It was just, I knew, you know, it's like, it's one of my, my guy friends. I've not seen him for ages. And it was like, it was just like, oh my, like, it was the best. It was like, oh man, I have missed that. <laughs> um, and actually recently I met um, a guy here who I'm just friends with and we were trying to establish the boundaries of our friendship. And I said, I'm just letting you know, I require hugs. So <laughs> you're going to need to put that on the list if we're going to remain friends because I've just been through lockdown and not been near any people for seven months. <laughs> There's going to be a second wave. It's going to be a well-intentioned hug-based second wave, isn't it? Sorry, Jacinta, uh, I'm afraid we've unleashed, unleashed the dogs of hell on New Zealand with a, a hug pandemic. Just on that note, um, a long time ago I was working in, there was a, a really bad, not like Exxon scale, but um, an oil spill off New Zealand, which is really unusual. And a lot of us traipsed up there to help. It's off the coast of Tarong on the northeast. And it was really full on and quite stressful work, long hours. And um, there was a guy um, who was working in it who had this sign on him, just popped up one day, something about I can give hugs or tell me if you need a hug or free hugs. And it was really amazing. Suddenly all these people were hugging him and everyone was hugging each other. I see and what he's done really there. it really helped with like mental morale. I'm sure that was a purely altruistic. <laughs> no, I don't think it was. Sure, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a sign, right? Away. Hugs here. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, and I, I, again, I've sort of pulled you away a little bit from like the, maybe the, the, the three lessons that you found on the roads with the tribe question, but you know, actually having that. So the, the, the first two were this, this two will pass, uh, having, having an awareness of gratitude for the things that you've got in our life and our existence. The second one was like out of bad things, good things can happen yeah. or you get new opportunities or um, places. 
And I think maybe the third one is like on the tribe note, like it's really important, especially if you're having a bad time to find your tribe and to find really positive people or people that can support you because it's really hard to get out of a bad situation if you're on your own and just surrounded by really negative people. And so sometimes you have to get, one of my friends described it well. She said, Caroline, you really need a friend cull every so often. (laughs) And um, just like um, when really bad things happen, the people who you think are, are your really good friends or the people that you feel like you've really supported through their bad times, I call them the chocolate friends, they just kind of disappear so it really makes you realize like what's important to you and who your really good friends are and for me really interestingly one of the really bad things that happened quite a few years ago is my dad got really ill and subsequently died of a terminal illness but the people who really like came to my aid in crisis were people who i didn't really at the time think were my really good friends and actually a lot of them so one of the things that got me through all that was um, I do Ciroc dancing I did I really love it and a lot of people there are really kind of mentally damaged and recovering so they all know what it's like to go through really bad times and they were the all my really good friends who saved my ass were my dancing friends and that's still true to this day actually it's really interesting and I kind of need to know what Ciroc dancing is but more more importantly I want to know do you have any advice or tips on how to cull a friend in a way that you know anyone that's listening that that needs that how how have you gone about that is there is there a way like is it just a they're deleted from your whatsapp list i'm not sure if my way is the right way i think there's various gradations okay i think this is worth exploring (laughs) if they've really massively transcended the border and i get really angry they're immediately axed from all media (laughs) never to be seen again <laughs> but I'm not sure and people have done that to me in fact really recently just got really angry with me ranting just cut me off everything because everyone's got their stuff going on and people can't always deal with other people's stuff on top of theirs and the other one is just to not speak to them for a while or communicate and then they're like oh you know what's going on or probably the really mature way is to address the situation and say <laughs> look, this isn't really working and these are the reasons why. Can we sort this out if you want to remain friends? <laughs> so option C is probably the preferred option. So it doesn't always happen in practice. It, it, right, it's the textbook answer, but it's uh, we'll just ignore that. It'll, it'll probably go away on its own. Sorry, can I just add, sorry to hijack your interview, <laughs> with the, you know, overcoming things and um, I think also Mm. it makes you really realize what you do want and you don't want and so another thing that happened was around the time of my dad dying really horrifically quite a few of my friends committed suicide who were not suicidal and again that really makes you realize life is short. Was that within veterinary medicine or? Three of them were vets and one was bipolar which I discovered later they're often really mentally unstable and unfortunately frequently do commit suicide, which I didn't realize at the time. And weirdly, the last time I'd seen him, he was like, my life is really great. He literally had the most amazing life, but you know, they have big ups and downs. Yeah. 
he was a really successful businessman and an amazing person. And those things that happened and a lot of the people were quite young really shocked me into realising life really is short. You don't know when someone's going to die or like I was in Christchurch in New Zealand when the earthquake happened and people died or had really life changing injuries. And my dad worked really hard for a really long time and then retired and got really ill really soon after and never got to enjoy his life. So I think that really pushed me to travel more recently because you just don't know what's going to happen. And another thing that my Cameroonian friend taught me, which is really important, is spend time with the people that you like and love and tell them that you like and love them. Because we often end up being so busy doing our lives <laughs> that we don't really do the human friendship things. And then that led me to kind of focus on, oh, what do I really want? You know, I like being a vet, but there's other stuff. Like I want to do the wildlife stuff. I want to be a presenter. I really want to go to Antarctica. <laughs> I want to like support people with mental health and do, and New Zealand is really terrible with that. And suicide is a big thing here. So I really want to get involved in suicide prevention. And I really feel like if you've been through that, like a lot of things like the suicide thing and the back injury, the pain, which I really can't describe until you've actually been through that. I don't really feel like you're qualified to help with those things. You know, it's like psychiatrists, they read a lot of books and then help people. One of my really good counsellors said to me, never see a counsellor who hasn't had counselling and been through a trauma because they really understand it. So yeah, I like helping people, disaster rescue stuff. I want to set up like a rescue task force for animals. I really want to like make a difference. And so the Africa thing as well, I want to try and do some kind of project and with other people that really makes a difference and isn't just like the white people giving, swanning over and giving aid because that's really not sustainable. People need to benefit and be able to improve themselves. So that's one thing I'm really passionate about. Sorry, slightly digressing Dave. Not at all. I love the insight. I love the insight. And um, what do you do to, you know, having witnessed or experienced and, or, or suffered and seen suffering in others and tragedy? Do you have any habits or routines to, you know, you've mentioned positivity before. How do you maintain your positivity? So I've actually really struggled with that with my recent injury because I was in really severe pain to the point that I couldn't even think or function. And I never really realized that pain could be that bad, like it literally hijacks your brain. So one of the things that really helped me when I couldn't walk and I was lying in a hospital was speaking to my friends and the friends that make you laugh. And again, really bizarrely, friends came to visit me who I hadn't seen for a really long time, who I didn't think were really great friends. They just turned up at the hospital to see me and laughing and watching funny stuff I found really helps with pain. And I think I read some studies a while ago that people cure themselves of cancer and things with that, like it really alters your brain. And, you know, people keep saying, you know, the brain is in charge of pain. And I was saying, well, no, I've had this really bad accident. And so that's why my back's sore. But ultimately it is your brain that really feels the pain so I've really got fascinated about psychology and neurobiology and like how it really affects everything basically and a lot of pain is mental the other thing that really helps is coming back to New Zealand was a really big move for me um, because I really struggled 
weirdly, although um, New Zealand and England are still Western countries, the culture is really different. And mm -hmm. I really struggled coming back. And I actually really regard this as a home. So after all the really bad episodes of dying, I really wanted to come back to New Zealand because I felt it was really therapeutic. And yeah. one of the reasons of that is um, the nature here is just, as you mentioned, really majestically spectacular. Stunning. And I find that really mentally healing. And I think I think that's like the new thing now. Someone was talking about eco-psychology, you know, don't take, I've always been really adamant. I will never take medication when I'm feeling really terrible, apart from when I was in pain where I took everything, <laughs> including give me the ketamine because it's in hospital and it works really well, <laughs> but sadly had no crazy dreams. But I, I think being with people that really support you and are positive and nature, those two things are really incredibly powerful and in making you feel better. And the positive mental thing, I try and read, I, re I really love reading and I read a lot of books about people who've like come through really terrible things and come out of it or have done really crazy challenges like these four women who were like oh we're going to row across the Atlantic and everyone was like that's really not going to happen like your four mothers and they did it um and stuff I find it really incredible you know if you believe and really recently the course that I'm doing the, the woman who's running it is really into bi behavior and biology and she's really inspirational and one of her big things is if you believe you can do it then you can and vice versa so you really need to like decide what you're going to do and then just do it and I've got this little diary thing actually just opposite me one of the two things that it says there's these little in pictures and one of them is dream big and the other one is you can totally do this <laughs> and every day I have a really good flick through that <laughs> I love that. I, I got sent this. I'm going to have to show you this now because I think this will make you laugh. And laughter is, as you say, very curative. So, so I got sent this. Uh, um, so a friend sent me this. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally you, Dave. So for the, in the interest of you who are not able to see the, the computer screen, some of my lovely friends sent me this bound book and it's basically a journal it's blank on the inside but on the front it's black cover very nice feel actually it's a little bit feels like moleskin but it says you're freaking awesome keep that shit up <laughs> but they're, they're just nice moments aren't they just beautiful things to get things like that and i just came in the post you know in lockdown things like that are gifts of themselves like the gift is not the gift the thought that goes into something like that is a gift isn't it Two more things um, that I found really helpful that I think other people would too is, and I think I mentioned this on the recent Vet Summit talk, dancing is really incredibly therapeutic. And when I first came to New Zealand, I'm really unco, like I fall over my own feet and trip over in the street. But when I was in New Zealand the first year, I really struggled with the really long dark winters because I like sports. And so I just turned up at this dance thing in my work boots, my still take up boots, which really didn't go down too well. That's going to be a partner with very sore shins or something like that. Yeah, it really doesn't work. But then I started, I started um, feeling like really good, like in my mind. And when things were really, really terrible with my dad, I basically went dancing a lot. And at times I used to come back really buzzing, thinking, wow, this is like better than a counseling session. And then I started reading like dancing actually really changes 
electrical activity in your brain and it's actually really good for you and also it moves nearly every muscle in your body so it kind of gets everything going releases endorphins and the really good thing about Ciroc dancing is for my job or anyone who's moving around who think oh it's really hard to find friends I find my friends through dancing like Ciroc is everywhere in the world you just turn up to the nearest club you don't have to have a partner, which is really handy, although part of it is you dance with a guy, but you can turn up anywhere in the world, meet new people, everyone's there who just wants to have a really nice time and dance. Sometimes you don't even need to speak to people if you don't want to. If I'm having a really bad day, I just dance them and walk off. <laughs> but also you meet really interesting people with all these different jobs and things that you never meet in your normal life. So that is, I find really mentally enriching. And I would really encourage anyone who's having a really tough time to do that. I think, you know, a lot of people say they're really shy and they don't like speaking to people, but you don't really have to. I'm lucky. I really like speaking to people. And, and one of the things, like you were saying about things that you've learned through life, my mother taught me some really interesting things. One was just go out and do it on your own. Don't wait for other people <laughs> and encourage us to be really independent. And also to be really assertive and know what you want, which did take a while. And also to just really disregard authority <laughs> and black things. <laughs> I think you just described who the influence for your... <laughs> People who are really high up and in charge, that doesn't mean they're always right or that you need to do what they say. Rules are guidelines. That was it. That's it. Rules are guidelines. <laughs> <laughs> That's what... <laughs> Um, and the other thing that's really helpful that I started doing, which I didn't really realise until recently, is I really like um, writing and kind of and, and my life, basically, I've kind of got this like alter ego called Calamity Caroline that I developed in the last few years because things just kept going really wrong. And I realised that this was really entertaining for other people. And so I started writing these little Facebook blogs, Calamity Caroline of actually things that really did happen that just seemed ridiculous. And I found that really therapeutic. It, it kind of helped me just kind of get stuff out. And it's people seem to find it really funny. So I'm thinking of like writing a little book based on like that and my vet stuff and travel. I feel like I would be remiss in not asking you for a, a Calamity Caroline story. <laughs> I mean, the Breaking Risk one's probably pretty good. I'll let, I'll let you off the hook because I know... Like the way we're going, we're going to need like around two and three here. I feel like we're t just scratching the, scratching the outsides. No, I mean those are. I love the the things you shared there. I know there's like the dancing. It combines that social with that exercise, which is just ticking so many human need boxes right there. And they say if if, if exercise was a medicine, it would be hailed as the most amazing wonder drug ever on this planet which is kind of cool really interestingly a lot of the dance people because they, they haven't been able to do it for a long time they're now doing online classes so you can do like a little group down online dance thing which is really um good that's what they're doing in new zealand because they're only just restarting it now yeah. so i don't really know what's happening in other countries or in england but i think yeah that's and also you know with, with the siroc dancing you're kind of not in a bad way but like touching another person you often dance really closely with a guy and just having that nice kind of like physical really social contact i think I really struggled with that. And I know a lot of my dancing friends really struggled as well because you just get really used to being close to people and you just take that for granted. Mm, yep, I agree. I'm going to move over to some of the more shorter form answer Q&A things, 
Right. So the question is, uh, if if you had a superpower, what, what what's your superpower? I don't really know if this is like an answer to your question, but if I could, I would end world poverty <laughs> so everyone could have access to education because I feel like that's really the answer to people progressing in their lives. That's aspirational. This has to be real. <laughs> Not that I'm putting down your aspirations. This is a great aspiration. No, that doesn't count. Unless you've got that superpower now, that does not count. If, you, if that's your superpower, then you need to be on a bigger... What, what's actually possible? What could I do? What's the thing you do better than anybody else? I think I'm really good at writing funny stories. You publish them on... So do you, do you have a Facebook page that people can follow to read stuff like that that's still in progress so uh yeah really early on when you said instagram i haven't quite progressed there i'm on facebook and linkedin <laughs> instagram is the next thing i'm going to do a little calamity caroline instagram and a new facebook but yeah, it's really hard to juggle all these um pages yeah it is it's a killer on time all right so what is your kryptonite if that's your superpower is writing and making people laugh through writing, what's your kryptonite? What's your weak spot, your Achilles heel? And, and how do you address that? Oh, weak spot. Yeah, that's really easy. I'm really disorganized. That guy never took your passport, did you? You just lost it. <laughs> You've been hassling Exxon, senior management. There's a passport you're going to find at the bottom of your suitcase in three years. It's really lucky you can't see the desk that I'm speaking from because it's covered in about 300 different parts of papers. And I also have lots of ideas, lots of things that I really want to do. And then I just don't really know how to go about doing them all. So that's um, a really big problem. And then, but somehow I managed to kind of scrabble things together and pull it out of the hat. <laughs> all right. I don't know if what you're talking about, the, the good thing, or if this is another question later, but one thing that I am really good at is talking to people and connecting people and finding people, like putting people together. That's a great superpower. And collaborating with people. And so one of the really good things that happened out of the bad thing recently is when I had a really bad back and I couldn't do any clinical work, I got offered to um, help organize the Australian part of the Global Veterinary Careers Summit. And in the beginning, I thought, gosh, I can really like barely handle Facebook and email. I'm not sure how this is going to work. And I had to do all these like, I, did, I thought there was this messenger system called Slack. I thought that was a state of mind. I didn't even really know it was a messenger system. <laughs> so, but I was really rubbish at that. But I found them all these speakers. And because I've traveled a lot and worked in a lot of places, I knew all these people. And I was like, oh, I can actually be really useful here. And so that was really nice to be able to help people and you know, and then try and learn a bit more about IT, which is an ongoing process. That's another weak spot. <laughs> what is a terabyte? <laughs> it sounds like something you would get on Iditarod, to be honest, but there you go. So what was the, uh, you could have a classic answer to that. What was the worst piece of advice you've ever either received or given? Oh, I think the received is, you know, like at work when you're trying to do stuff or improve stuff differently and people just say, well, that's what we've always done. So that's what we're going to keep on doing. And that's what you have to do, which is really common in the vet world. It is. And what was the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? 
One of my really good travel friends, actually, when we were talking about, oh, when I was talking about, well, I don't really know whether to do this or what to do or whether to do it. And she said, well, Caroline, before, when you think about whether you're going to do it or not, answer these two questions. Will it matter in 100 years? Is anyone going to die? And if the answer <laughs> to both of those is no, then you really just need to get on and do it. And that has really been helpful. <laughs> I really feel we're getting the picture here. Yeah. That doesn't always mean things turn out well, but at least you've tried. No one died. And, and yes, that conviction will be on my police record in 100 years. <laughs> I love that. Now, is there a book, you know, you, you mentioned writing, you mentioned you like reading. Is there a book or are, are there a couple of books that you think you know, have been very impactful for you? That have been in great reads you'd recommend to anyone? Two books that I found really helpful in the brain department are The Chimp Paradox, which really opened my eyes and not always in a good way. So uh, <laughs> actually kind of really horrified me like, oh my God, I am a chimp and I was brought up by a chimp and I'm still swinging in the jungle and I really need to sort this shit out. <laughs> so it was really good. At I've read lots of brain books and I remember talking to a counsellor saying, I've read all these books and nothing's working. And he said, well, I, have you done actually done anything that it says in the books? Oh no, I'm far too busy for that. And so the chimp book really made me realise, oh, okay, this kind of explains it. You've got like your chimp brain, which is really reactive and emotive, and you just flap the handle if things go really wrong, my mother. And then you've got um, like the logical analytical brain, which says, no, you really need to like calm this down and like think it through. That doesn't really happen with me. And then you've got like the computer brain where references oh you know where have have we had this before have we got a database and kind of process it and that book was really revelational to me a that all these three things happen and b that I really need to sort my shit out because <laughs> something's really wrong in the chimp department <laughs> and it really opened my eyes to why I was having a lot of problems in even though I've been a vet for a really long time I had some really big issues with communication a lot and this is why <laughs> The other book that I think found really helpful, which is more just if you're kind of having a bad time or you really just need to refocus, is there's a book called, um, there's actually a few books by the same guy. I think it's called John Kabat-Zinn or something. But um, a few friends recommended this to me when they were really struggling. And it's called Mindfulness, something like Mindfulness, Finding Peace in a Frantic World. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really good. It just makes you totally like calm down your brain. And one of the things in it, it has the raisin meditation. And like oh, yeah. you put a raisin in your mouth. And when I was reading this, I was thinking, this is really a pile of rubbish. But it actually is really good because your brain can only focus on one thing at a time. So if it's really focusing on, like, feel the raisin in your mouth, what does, like, your tongue feeling it, the texture, the taste of it when you crunch it, and the chocolate meditation, which I prefer more. <laughs> and there's lots of little things like that. And it just goes through really small stages. And it has a CD in as well that you, so you can go back to. Because a lot of these books you really need to read about five times like you don't always take it all in but um those two books I would really recommend to anyone because they're really revelational that's awesome what's the coolest piece of equipment you have for traveling that served you well like what would you not what's the first thing goes in your case when you're going on travels <laughs> I wouldn't say this is really cool but it's one thing that I learned from New Zealand I don't go anywhere without duct tape <laughs> because 
there's actually someone here wrote a book 101 uses for it and actually because i'm really accident prone and always breaking things you can fix anything with duct tape including animals what is the coolest application of duct tape that you've ever performed not really me using it, but when I was in the Iditarod, this woman fell off her quad bike into this frozen river and got hauled out. And she had a really horrendously sprained ankle. And we were in the middle of really the middle of the middle of nowhere. And she should have really gone to hospital. And she said, no, I'm not doing that. And she just strapped up her ankle with duct tape for a week to keep it stable. <laughs> until the race finished and she went to hospital to deal with the injury so that was the most insane thing that I've seen not really an insane use but in Mongolia it was really useful for um so you have to get really resourceful there and because you don't have all the things you need I found duct tape was really useful for strapping intravenous catheters onto the horses and the Mongolians loved it when I whipped out my really big red duct tape and started wrapping it around the horse's neck and then wrapping it around the drip which is attached to the van which is attached to the guy sitting on top of the van I would, but really annoyingly, if you put it in your hand luggage, sometimes they sometimes confiscate it because they say that it's a lethal weapon and you can strap people to their seats. Right. They, they probably use it in bomb making and things like that as well. Yeah. yeah you can't go taking that on an aircraft in the hole. It's just like going to tape the pilots to the chair or something like that. Like, yeah, I can, I can see where they're coming from there. <laughs> Although they're really inconsistent. Once in Canada, I flew through the same airport. What The first time, fine. The second time, they said, no, we need to take this off you. And we had this really big Mexican standoff because I said, look, I've already been through here and it was fine. I've done it once. And so they had to get the high up customs person to say, no, ma'am, you're really not getting on the plane with this. <laughs> also in Mongolia, they don't make duct tape, so it's really valuable. Oh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, so if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation. So let's let's sort of set the scene a little bit. You are back coming out of vet school. You're kind of, it's like the end of this line, this epic amount of hard work that you've put in. And you're kind of on, on the steps. And I don't know if Liverpool University, where you actually do the graduation, whether it's at that sort of, <laughs> you know, the... The, the, it's probably Anfield or somewhere like that. No. Football stadium. <laughs> no, we didn't graduate on the football stadium. <laughs> we had a proper hall. You had a proper hall. And we dressed up properly in the hat. And you did, you did the whole Monty. So that's the thing. But you can pop up in your amazing time travel machine and just in a quiet moment, take yourself aside and give yourself a little bit of sagely world advice. What would you tell yourself back then? Well, one thing that I really wish I'd done or I wish I'd learnt before all the vet stuff is done some kind of psychology or business degree <laughs> because um, or even and I think now they're really addressing that in vet school because our job, a lot of us, so oh, we really love animals and we want to help the people who own the animals. But 99 percent of our job is human communication. And if you find it really difficult to like I, I find it really easy to talk to people, but there's a difference between talking and communicating. 
And um, I've really struggled a lot with um, some people in certain areas and certain places that I've worked in, both clients and bosses. And I think if you understand like why people think the way they do and just really simple things like, you know, different characters, like doing a understanding the, uh, you know, personality test. If you can understand where different people are coming from and how they work, your job will be a million times easier. And also just basic business knowledge. Like I still get nearly hypertension, high blood pressure, even thinking about trying to use a really high tech um, accounting system or um, any kind of computer business strategy. <laughs> I had to look up what strategy and systems planning was in my personality test because I didn't even really know what it is. <laughs> and also don't go to vet school straight from school I think is really important have a year out travel work even just doing non-vetty work do other things because Mm -hmm. life experience is really important and makes a huge difference and just in emotion I wouldn't really say that I emotionally matured until my 40s but just Things and experiences that I've done, good and bad, have really helped in situations that have come up later. And I think when you're really young and 18, you really want to help and you can, but often you don't have the wisdom to do it a lot of the time. Amen to that. 22 and I graduated as a vet and I think, what was that about? (laughs) But but you think you're like, I've got this, I can do this. I knew I was an idiot. Like there was no... (laughs) It really wasn't like everyone knew I was an idiot. Like the nurses in the, in my first practice, like they would not let me keep more than a plant. Like I was a graduated onto a goldfish to keep that thing alive. And even the plants were a struggle. All right. So last question then is if you can, so you can send a Facebook message, but everyone, everyone in the world gets that popping up on their computer. What would the message be? I would say believe in yourself and the impossible is impossible and just go and do it because you don't know what's going to happen unless you try. Fantastic. That's a, it seems like a nice place to wind things up. Um, Caroline, if people want to follow your adventures, read some of the hilarious posts or just shout you out on the interwebs, where's a good place for them to do that? So currently I'm a bit behind in that. I've got my Caroline Murray and the Wilderness Vet Facebook page. So facebook.com forward slash the Wilderness Vet and... Something like that, yeah. Um, But my Calamity Caroline one is on just my, I think it's, I can't actually remember what it's called. I think it's also Caroline Murray, the Wilderness Vet. I need to check. We will link that up from the show notes page when we publish that point i'm going to do an instagram that's a in in the bucket list in progress you must you must do that because the photographs that you will have in reserve the content that's there combined with the storytelling you can do that will blow up for you i'm sure so it'd be a great thing to do uh caroline thank you so much you've been really generous with your stories i feel like we have only just scratched the surface here a little bit and what's wonderful is I I know that there are many many chapters for you to come and I look forward to hearing more of your stories perhaps in the future and you can you can come back and share some some more of this but but thank you for you know it's inspiring to read uh, and to your, your journey to hear from you it was a real pleasure to run into you for me 
at the conference and just to have this time to to connect with you has just been wonderful so thank you for sharing some inspiration and, and for blazing a trail out there in the world keep that going keep the the stories coming the world needs a lot more of that in it <laughs> thank you dave i'm really privileged to be talking to you and thank you very much for the opportunity Hey folks, just before you zip away for the rest of your day, just want to take a second to say thank you so much to Caroline and remind you to say hi and thanks and follow her and be generous for her giving us her insight into her little bit of the world. If you enjoyed the show as well, I would really appreciate you taking a second right now, right now, go ahead and do it. Share your thoughts on Instagram, share them on Facebook. The way we keep getting guests is by growing the listenership and by being relevant. And my final thanks go to our sponsor today, which is the Venex Thrive community. If you're interested in building your career, please go check that out too. So until next time, from all of us here at Blunt Dissection Podcast, be safe, be well, and be happy. <laughs>